0: Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. I'm glad to have you all worshiping with us this morning, even though some of you do look a little sleepy. I'm not going to lie. Uh, I talked to some in the first service and uh, I asked them, I said, Well, are you bright eyed and bushy tailed? And they said, Well, we may be bright eyed, but if you're looking for bushy tailed, you better go hunt a squirrel. And, and they, they kind of gave me that look, so I knew to back off. But y'all, hey, look, y'all, y'all look much more awake, and much. you've had an entire extra hour, so we're excited about that. More coffee, and uh, we're excited to have you with us this morning. Those of you who are worshiping with us online, we're excited to have you with us this morning as well. We thank you for worshiping with us at Ivy Creek. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them, turn with me once again to the Gospel of John and to chapter 6. John chapter 6. This morning we're going to continue in our sermon series in which we've been investigating the signs that were, uh, John recorded for us uh, throughout his gospel. And um, we have been looking at those and how they point us to Jesus, how they tell us significant things about Jesus. And uh, today I want us to look at uh, a sign, a miracle that uh, is recorded here in John chapter 6. And outside of the resurrection of Christ, this is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. There are many that are they're recorded in three, and there are some that are recorded uh, in just two, but this one is recorded in all four Gospels, and that likely makes it uh, one of the more well-known of Jesus' miracles. It's the miracle in which Jesus feeds the 5,000 with five barley loaves and with two fish. And I just want to say by way of, of introduction and sort of overview that this, this is the, the front part of John chapter 6. But if you kind of work your way through all of John 6, you'll find that the eating and, and food and bread in particular is a key theme that works its way throughout this entire chapter. It's quite a long chapter in John's gospel, and, and eating and food is, is, a, is a, a theme that is a, a common line that works its way through there. In fact, if I counted correctly, the word bread occurs 20 times in John chapter 6. And and that is in addition to the other references to eating and to food. Let me also point out, though, that as as we have seen in previous studies, even here in John's gospel uh, over the last few weeks, when Jesus speaks of bread, when he speaks of food here, uh, he infuses those terms with a greater spiritual meaning. Now we've seen him do that already, particularly when he went to the temple there in John chapter 2 and he cleared the temple of all of those that were selling all their wares there in the outer court. And Jesus was confronted by the Jewish uh, people there. He looked at them and he said, look, tear this temple down and in three days I will build it up again. Now when Jesus said that, he was not speaking about Herod's temple, he was speaking about his own body. And so we see that Jesus used uses terminology at times that, that he also is, is speaking spiritually. He did that again in John chapter three when he encountered Nicodemus. He told Nicodemus that if he wanted to be part of the kingdom of God, he had to be born again. And Nicodemus asks, well, do I have to enter into my mother's womb a second time? He completely missed the point that Jesus was saying, no, you have to be born spiritually. You have to be reborn by spirit. Happened again in John four. In John four, he encounters a woman at the well. There he tells her, look, you know, if you would ask of the one that you're talking to to give you water, he would give you living water. And she goes, you don't even have a bucket. You don't even have a means of which to draw water out of this well. Jesus was not speaking of physical water. He was speaking of spiritual water of which he is the source of everlasting supply. So so Jesus has been doing this all through John's gospel. He's been talking about physical things, but infusing those terms with spiritual meanings, and he does the same thing here in John chapter 6. When he talks about bread and about food and about eating, he's speaking of himself. In fact, we even see that in John chapter 6, verse 27, he says, Do not labor for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on. Jesus is beginning to speak about himself as being that bread. In fact, he says specifically in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Then in verses 48 and 51, he repeats that claim. I am the bread of life. Then he says this, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Now, in all of these passages, Jesus is speaking about bread. He's speaking about food. But as I said, he infuses those terms with spiritual meaning and he lets all those following him know that he is their bread. He is their food. He is the absolutely essential component to life that will sustain them. But I want you to know those Jews didn't understand that. They didn't didn't understand what Jesus was saying. What he said to them didn't compute. They could not get to that spiritual plane with Jesus. In fact, by the time that we get to the end of John chapter 6 those Jews that had been following Jesus, they became so offended by his words, so offended by the things that he said, that they just threw their hands up and they shook their heads and they turned and they walked away from Jesus. In fact, John tells us in verse 66, from that time, many of his
1: disciples went back and walked with him no more. Now, the reason that I point all that out to you is because it's such a
0: radical shift from how this chapter begins. John 6 begins with telling us that multitudes of people were flocking to Jesus. They were coming to him. And it ends with many of them walking away from Jesus. In the middle, they, they, they throng around him because they want to make him by force to be their king so that he can always bring them bread and food to eat Physically. But when he tells them, I have become the one who will bring your bread for eternity, they can't get their minds wrapped around that and they walk away. So much so that even Jesus turns around and looks at his own disciples. And he asks them down in verses 68, 69, excuse me. And before that, he says, do you want to just, do you want to leave and, and walk away from me too? And then in verse 68 and 69, Peter replied, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. I want you to know that same decision faces every single one of us in this room today. The question is, are we going to throw our hands up and shake our heads and just walk away from Jesus in disbelief or? Or will we embrace him as our Savior and our Lord, our only hope for salvation and eternal life? Remember, that is exactly why John wrote what he did. It's why he he included in this gospel all of these signs. He said, Jesus did a lot of other signs that I didn't write down, but these I have written in John chapter 20, verse 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you may have life in his name. The question before us this morning is, will we believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing, will we partake of that life, that bread of life that is ours to have in him? So with that as an introduction and kind of giving us the, 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 really the summary of, of all of John chapter 6, let's go back to the beginning and back to that first section, in which we find the, this, this, this sign that we see of Jesus where he uses this bread and these fish to feed the multitude. Beginning in, in verse 1 of chapter 6, read, with, read along with me. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now, the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down. And likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled... He said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for this day and for this opportunity that's been given to us to be able to open our Bibles and to be able to read and to hear about the miraculous things that you have done. Lord, it just draws us back to the most miraculous thing that you've done, and that is that you would save sinners like me someone who could not save himself, someone who was completely undeserving of your grace and your mercy. Yet in your mercy, you have reached down and, and you have saved someone like me who didn't deserve it, but yet you have been gracious to me. And Lord, not only to me, but to many, many, many others in this room. And our, our collective testimony is that we were lost, but now we've been found. We were blind, but now we see. So thank you for that. Thank you for your love and the grace that Shown upon us. How is it that you can be so good to us? Father, I pray that you would continue to pour your blessings upon us and help us to, help us to grapple with that and think of just how good you actually are. And then, and then to also grapple with the subsequent question is what then does that
1: mean? In light of the grace that you've shown me, what then does that mean for my life? How am I to utilize this great gift that you have given to? me?
0: I pray that as we peer into this text this morning, that those questions would, would constantly pepper us and push us forward into understanding just exactly who you are and what you desire to do with
1: So, Father, this is my prayer, and I ask it in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Many of you know probably a couple of years ago, in fact, it was January of 2020, that um,
0: the church afforded me the opportunity to travel to Israel for my very first time for a trip to the Holy Land. And that trip began with us going to the the group that I was with, which was a group of other pastors. Now, let me just tell you, that's a lot of fun. That you're traveling to Israel with a bunch of pastors, and all of us are wanting to preach every time we get stopped someplace. One of the places that we stopped, we went to the Galilee part of, of Israel first, and when we got there, we stopped at, at, at Cana, where Jesus turned water into wine. We, we stopped at Capernaum, where the nobleman lived with his son, who was healed. And we also stopped at a little wide spot in the road that you probably wouldn't necessarily notice, but the town was named Tabka And Tabca is is a place that's traditionally understood to be where Jesus performed the miracle that we've read about this morning, where he fed the 5,000, with the five loaves and the two fish. Now, Tabka isn't really a flashy spot. It's, it's like I said, it's more, not much more than a little wide spot in the road. They have they built a, a church there, and, and and I remember being at that spot and, and sort of looking back, standing down by the sea. The sea would have been to my back, and I just looked up on this mountainside, and I tried to imagine it as the text presents it, This this wide array and just thinking about, you know, what, Five thousand people. That's what John says. It's five thousand men. But Matthew makes clear that that's five thousand men in addition to the women and the children. So there could have been as many as fifteen, twenty thousand people, all up on this mountainside. And 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 one of the I think it's Matthew that makes it clear that it's green grass. My, John says they sat down on the grass. So you know it was, it was the springtime, and it was also the time of Passover. So it's spring. And I'm just imagining this array. It's like a blanket with all of these many many colors of all these people upon this mountainside. It was a very moving moment for me. It was not one of those, it was not one of those sights that you might think, but it's it's being in a spot that you've read about all of your life and thinking about the miracle that occurred there. And and it's and it's an amazing thing. You notice that in verse two, John gives us the primary reason why this, why this large crowd of people were there and why they had come to be around Jesus. He says that a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. Now that tells us something important. It it tells us that, that, that this multitude chased Jesus down so that he could heal them. That's what leads me to the first point that I want to give you today. You see, I want us to consider what John has written with regard to how this sign points us to who Jesus is and how he works. That's that's the question that I have in front of you. Who is Jesus and how does he work? And, And as we consider that, I've developed my thoughts around three hooks. And the first one is just this. We are introduced to a needy and starving multitude. A needy and a starving multitude. John tells us that this huge mass of folks saw the signs that Jesus had performed on those who were diseased, and they ran after Jesus. They came after him, bringing their sick from their family. They came after him, bringing their their own selves with their sicknesses. And they sought Jesus
1: out, hoping that he would heal them. They ran after him because of what he could provide for them. They weren't
0: coming after him because he was the son of God who could save them. You notice that. They they came after him because of the signs he had performed on those who were diseased. Just like that royal official that we looked back at back in chapter 4, what we recognize is that they came not looking for the salvation of their souls.
1: They came hoping for a solution to their sicknesses. In other words, they were needy. Can I be completely transparent and honest with you this morning as your pastor? Needy people are hard. Needy people are tough. And the reason that that's the case is because needy people are often hard to satisfy.
0: No matter what you do, it never seems to be quite enough. There's always more need. And I would imagine that by this point, Jesus' disciples had figured that out. You see, the other gospels tell us that Jesus had just sent the 12 out along with others, to go on this ministry caravan. They had, they had gone out on this ministry tour and they had come back to report their experiences to Jesus. And no doubt, I believe that during that time of, of going out throughout Israel and ministering, that they had come to know just how needy people can be. And no doubt, these disciples were tired. They were looking for some downtime. But instead of being able to take a break, they they, along with Jesus, see this large multitude coming toward them, and they knew good and well there was not going to be any downtime to be had. I'm going to guess that they weren't too excited about seeing this large swarm of people. They were hoping for a little R&R, but the approaching multitude guaranteed that that wasn't going to happen. So the 12 were probably not in the best of moods. But the other gospel writers tell us that Jesus seeing the crowd was moved with compassion that's the difference between the disciples and Jesus Jesus is moved with compassion he sees the crowd and literally the greek word there talks about the way he was
1: moved with compassion splech neomai it means that his stomach rolled within him his guts cramped up if we could say it to be as that's what it, you've
0: felt that before when you've been so moved by something that it, it just caused your stomach to... That's the word that's used about Jesus having compassion on this group. Mark says that he was moved with them because they were like sheep without a shepherd.
1: And Here they come. In other words, despite the
0: fact that this multitude pursued him only out of selfish motivations, John makes that clear... Jesus still healed their sick, and he also instructed and taught them about the kingdom of God. So they were needy. But then we also recognize that such a large group out in this place, well, I told you food runs as a a common theme, and we're introduced to it here. They had nothing to eat. So not only were they needy, but they became hungry as well. In fact, fact, it became a major concern for the disciples and for the people because here they were out in this northern tip of the Sea of Galilee with no place to go, and food becomes a major concern. So as we consider this sign and we seek to understand what it teaches us about Jesus and, and how Jesus works, the first thing that we're presented with is this this needy and starving multitude. But then there's more that we need to see because we have to dive deeper. Notice the next hook that we come to in this passage. You see the needy and starving multitude is met with negligible and substandard means. Negligible and substandard means. What do I mean by that? Well, notice in verse 3 that there's this mountain range that was there. And then from what Philip indicates, there were no significant towns anywhere around. In fact, the other gospel writers say that this place was a desolate place. It was a a deserted place. In other words, they didn't have a a Publix or a Kroger or even a Dollar General that they could run to and find a little something, you know, when it's late at night and they need a little something and the cupboard's bare. There was no place to go. In fact, speaking of Philip, wouldn't you like to be Philip? Jesus has got 12 disciples, but he singles Philip out. He says, Philip, where can we go to get any food for these folks? And I can just imagine Philip going, I don't know. Why don't you ask Peter? (laughs) Peter seems to always have an answer. Scholars actually suggest that, that Philip was from this region of Galilee, and so he singles him out because he would have most likely known if there was any place out there. But I think it's important to note that what Jesus was and what he wasn't doing here. Jesus wasn't asking Philip because Jesus needed an answer that would help him figure out what he was going to do. He he wasn't trying to solicit information from Peter that he didn't have to help him formulate a plan. John makes that clear. John said, Jesus did this. He asked this question to test Philip because he already knew what he was going to do. So it was a test. Sometimes God may test us. Sometimes he may put us in a place where he tests us to find out where our faith is because that really is what we see happening here. I think it's important to note that that in in asking Philip, where would they go? By extension, he's asking all the rest of the disciples, where are you going to go? What are you going to do? You're faced with a situation that's beyond your ability. You're
1: faced with an impossible scenario. Who are you going to place your faith in? What are you going to place your faith in? I think it's
0: sort of along these lines. You're going to throw your hands up, shake your head, quit, walk away. Task is too big. No place to go. Or are you going to trust in the one who is able to do something beyond your wildest imaginations? So recognizing this was a test, how did Philip do? Well... Notice what Jesus asked him. He wanted to know where they were supposed to go. Philip responded to the wrong question. He told them how much money they had and what they couldn't get with it. Doesn't matter where we go, Jesus. We only got 200 denarii, and that wouldn't even be enough to buy bread so that everybody could get a small bite of it. A denarii was a, 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 a one-day's wage that was offered someone. So if, that was, if that's the case and it's 200 days wage, you might say eight months of salary for a regular laborer And eight months of salary, we might think, well, that's a pretty significant amount. But when you have upwards of 20,000 people, that's not going to buy enough bread to do any good. So Philip's saying, Jesus, it doesn't matter if there's any towns
1: around here. We don't have enough money to do anything, even if there were. Philip flunked the test Jesus gave him. But he wasn't alone. Andrew steps up. Andrew's the brother of Peter.
0: And he says, hey, I found this young boy this young boy's got five barley loaves and, and two fish. He's got his lunch with him. Now, if Andrew had stopped right there, I think he would have gotten a much higher score on his test. But he didn't stop. He continued. He looked at that piddly amount of food, and he said, but well, what is this among so many? Obviously, Andrew didn't believe that this boy's lunch was going to go very far. And even so, I doubt that it was all that appealing to him. I, I read something about this lunch. I, I, we... we in our world, probably wouldn't think too much about it, but, but one writer put it this way. He says, one thing that is beyond dispute is that the boy was carrying the lowest quality of bread available to people at the time. In fact, he says, only those who lived in poverty, for the most part, ate bread made from barley. Spurgeon said this. He said, barley bread was more fit for animals than it was for humans. Furthermore, the fish that the boy had were just small little fish, They were probably there, pickled fish of some sort, to just give the barley bread a little flavor that made it palpable that you could actually eat it, something that would allow you to to actually chew it up and swallow it. So this was not mountain stream trout. This was not Alaskan salmon. This was not fried catfish. This was something probably along the lines of sardines. That's enticing, right? Barley bread and sardines. I'm sure that that was not all that appealing to the disciples and there wasn't very much of it. What are we going to do with this? There's negligible and substandard means here, Jesus. And this is what we come to realize. Is the needy and the starving multitude, well, they didn't have much to meet their needs. Negligible and standard means. Nearly no resources. Too many people.
1: Might as well throw their hands up. Might as well just shake their head. Might as well just walk away. It's impossible. Jesus gave this test, and the disciples get failing grades because no
0: one responded with the affirming power of Jesus to provide. Philip and Andrew, well, they speak in this passage, but I want you to know that the silence of all the rest of the disciples tells a big story as well. All of them displayed insufficient faith. All of them had seen Jesus do many miracles up to this point. This multitude came to Jesus because they had seen Jesus do significant signs. The disciples had seen more than they had seen. They had walked with Jesus. They had seen the things that he had done. Not only had they seen what Jesus had done, they knew that he was God incarnate. There was a faith that was burgeoning within them at this point. And they knew what God was capable of doing. They knew from the Old Testament that their forefathers had come out of Egypt, out of slavery, into a land where they had nothing to eat, but God had never failed them. He had fed them with manna from heaven. He had fed them with quail more than they could eat. Jehovah-Jireh was His name, God who provides. They knew this. They knew it tangibly. They had seen it with their own eyes, and yet here they are. Rather than focusing on those things, rather than affirming their faith and their dependence upon the fact that Jesus was God manifest in the flesh, Philip and Andrew and the rest of the disciples chose to focus on the
1: impossible nature and the enormity of their problem. But before we become too critical of these disciples, I wonder how often you and I respond in the exact same way. You see, just like these disciples, we're often tested. We often face a test of our faith. Christ often tests us as well. Sometimes that test will involve our finances Sometimes that test will involve our health. That test may involve
0: something else altogether different. But the question never changes.
1: The question that we are asked really is the same question that Jesus asked Philip. Where will you go to find the answer to your problem? Where will you go? Listen, if your focus remains on the enormity of your situation then you will begin
0: to seek solutions in places other than where you should. But Christ has been revealed to you. John says, I have given you these signs so that your faith might be in the one in whom you can trust. And you may place your faith in him and your confidence can be in Jesus. He is Jehovah Jireh. He is God who provides. And he is the only one in whom we can have complete and total confidence and the only one who can save us.
1: Now, the reality is that the question that Jesus asked
0: here and uh, asked Philip, really, it, where, where he could go to seemingly find the answer to his problem, he should, Philip, if he'd have been smart, he would have answered the way Peter answered. I mean, I, I picked on Peter earlier, but think about it. The proper answer to Jesus when he said... Where can we go to buy all the food that's going to be needed for here? If he'd have been smart, he'd have answered what Peter answered down in verse 68. "Lord, to whom shall we go? You. You have the words of eternal life." So the first half of this passage presents us with a needy and starving multitude who are met by Jesus' disciples who realize that they have negligible and substandard means at their disposal. That sets us up for the actual. Miracle that comes next, and you'll note it there. The third point is just this it's a noteworthy and spectacular miracle. A noteworthy and spectacular miracle. I like how one writer put it with the crowd being hungry, the disciples at a standstill, Jesus took charge of the situation and displayed his glory. He told the disciples to make everyone sit down, and, and then he broke them up into groups of 50 and 100. That's what Mark tells us in his, in his account of this miracle. And so with as many as fifteen to 20,000 people broken up into groups of 50 and 100, you can begin to imagine all these little pockets of groups spread out all across the green grass of this mountainside. And then, with very little fanfare, according to verse 11 of John 6, Jesus took the five barley loaves and the two small fish, and he began to just break them and distribute them. Break them, give them to the disciples. The disciples then take it to the group and begin to spread it out among the group. And when they got empty, empty empty-handed, they would go back to Jesus. Jesus would fill their hands back up. He'd take it out to the next group, break it up, spit it out, give it to all the group. As soon as their hands were empty, back to Jesus. More food in the hands. Back out to the crowd. Over and over and over again, this is repeated. And this miracle begins to just unfold before everybody. Now, I want to just say this to you. It's this miracle, though, that unfolds all the time. When the servant of God comes and, and when, when you serve others and you become empty and you pour yourself out and you give away everything you've got, you know what? You go back to Jesus and he fills you up again. And he fills your hand full of that miraculous supply that he gives and only he can. And you go back and you serve and you go until you go empty again. And you go back to Jesus and he fills it up again. What we see happen here is really a model for what ministry is all about. It's what sustains, I, can I be honest, it's what sustains me. That you pour out everything you've got and then you go back and say, Jesus, fill me up again from your everlasting supply so that I may serve others.
1: That is, that is the model of ministry that we see here. I love what Philip Graham Racken has says, God's provision is abundant. They kept, the disciples kept going back to Jesus for
0: more food, and every time they went back, there was always more. Alexander McLaren puts it this way, the pieces grew under his touch, and the disciples always found his hands full
1: when they came back with their own empty. What's interesting is that only a moment before, those small little loaves
0: and, and those two fish were in the hands of this young boy, and they belonged to him.
1: And in and of that, they weren't very much at all. But in the hands of Jesus, when anything,
0: no matter how small, is surrendered to him, he takes it and he uses it in far greater ways with far greater results than we can ever imagine. And John goes on to emphasize the lavishness of the supply. In verse 11, he states that people were able to eat as much as they wanted. In other words, the miracle is that in the hands of Jesus, this meager lunch, barely enough to feed this young boy was
1: transformed into a meal
0: that feeds thousands upon thousands. Now, you may wonder what I did. Does that mean that those barley loaves and those sardines tasted better? I think they probably did. I think that they made them... When Jesus breaks it and turns it, he not only takes it what was bad, he turns it into something good. And they ate... You get from the words that they're in the Greek, they ate as much as they wanted. And I don't think that meant, no, I think I'm good. I don't think I want anything. No, I think they filled their bodies. They were able to eat all that they wanted from it, and it was good for them. Such a noteworthy and spectacular miracle. And it presents for us just how grand and glorious Jesus is. And as I mentioned earlier, what, what I've been trying to present for us is the ability for us to answer this question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And how does he work? Based upon this miracle, who is Jesus and how does he work? Well, that brings me to my sermon in a sentence. And my sermon in a sentence is this. Jesus is the all-sufficient one who uses inadequate people who surrender their insufficient resources to accomplish what appears to be impossible. Think about that again. Jesus is the all-sufficient one who uses inadequate people who surrender their insufficient resources to accomplish what appears to be
1: impossible. That's who Jesus is. That's how he operates. Now, normally when we get to the sermon in a sentence,
0: that's everybody's clue, and I can always hear it. The Bible start closing and people start wrestling. It's time to leave. And and I promise you, we we are drawing to a close. But before we do, Hopefully, you've got a little extra space there. I just want to try to see if we can apply this. We, we've looked at the story. Now, I think it's time to see, are there some things that we can, because there's so much here. It's so much we can't even touch. But there are some things that I think are necessities for us as people, as followers, as children of God to consider. The first one, I think, is just simply this. Do you notice how much God cares for the needy here? Do you notice how, his, how he moves, how his heart is moved with compassion toward the needy? Oftentimes, we, oftentimes that's, that's not what, we, what characterizes us in the church. You might think that it would be, but oftentimes it's not. It's more about keeping the, keeping the, the function going, keeping the gears greased. But do you see Jesus is concerned with the needy? The needy and the starving multitude. He had compassion upon them.
1: As I said, Mark says that they were like sheep without a shepherd. I want you to know Jesus is compassionate. And he delights, delights in meeting our needs. That's who Jesus is. Secondly, we learn that Jesus is not
0: limited by our inadequate resources. Quoting Mark again, when the disciples begged Jesus to, to, when when this multitude came, they said, Jesus, send them out to let them get food for themselves. Jesus turned and looked and says, you feed them. You do it. You don't get the opportunity to dish this onto somebody else. You do it. They said, We don't have anything. He says, Bring
1: me what you've got and let me do what I do. Bring me what you have. Let me do what I do. Watchman
0: Nee, who is a, uh, was a Chinese author and preacher and teacher and church leader, he wrote this. He says, the meeting of need is not dependent on the supply in hand, but on the blessing of the Lord resting on the supply. You get that? It's it's not about what you've got right here. It's about the hand of God coming on top and resting on it and taking and doing with it just extravagantly more than what you could imagine. That's what it is. In the hands of Jesus, listen, the most meager of offerings can be multiplied and used to do things far greater than we could ever imagine.
1: Perhaps you don't think that you've got too much to offer. Perhaps this young boy thought that. Andrew certainly thought that. But Jesus fed the multitude with five loaves and two fish. And listen, how big or how little something is Doesn't matter with God. He can use anything that we offer to him when we offer it in faith.
0: Let me also point out that when Jesus tested Philip, really when he tested all of his disciples, he not only wanted them to realize their own inadequacies and their own insufficiencies to accomplish this monumental task that was before them, but he was also ultimately pointing them to his all-sufficient ability to provide for them everything that they would need. You see, Jesus was pointing them back to him, not to themselves. He he wasn't holding up a mirror and say, investigate everything you've got and then use it to your best ability and hopefully it'll turn out okay. No, he was saying, when you come to the end of yourself and realize you've got nothing else and you bring it to me, I'm the one who can take it and multiply. it." And you know what he was also doing? He was also not giving these disciples the prerogative to pass the buck to somebody else. They wanted to tell all of those people to go and find food for themselves. And Jesus says, no, 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 you do it. Not a one of these disciples could have walked away from that event arguing that Jesus wasn't calling them to serve. Not a one. And I want you to know, there is not a single follower of Christ today who can argue that Christ is not calling them
1: to serve. Not a one of us. You and I have to remember that. All of us who claim that Jesus Christ is our
0: Lord and our Savior, we are called to serve him by being his hands and feet as we serve others. We are called to take the good news of the gospel and shine a light for him in this dark world in which we live. And listen, when that calling, whenever we accept that and we go about doing it, The option of shifting that responsibility to someone else and leaving it for someone else to deal with is not an option for us. Christ calls us to obediently serve him by serving others. And whenever we do that, we will inevitably come up against situations that are beyond our abilities. Nevertheless, we are to continue to obey. Trust and obey. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Philip Graham Reichen, I've quoted him once, he makes the comment about Christian service based upon this miracle, and he says that the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is virtually a parable for Christian ministry. From time to time, we see what people need spiritually and otherwise, and we realize that whatever we have to give is woefully inadequate. Nevertheless, we offer our time and our talents and the best that we're able to give, and then Jesus takes it, and by the supernatural power of his grace, he uses it to help people. And he also uses us in the process so that we join in the work of his kingdom. Can I be completely honest with you? As your pastor, can I I just simply say to you that I fear that too many of Jesus' followers cheat themselves out of significant blessings because they deceive themselves in two ways. First, some don't take the call to service and offering to God what they have seriously. As a result, they pass the buck and they refuse to serve and they walk away in disobedience. Others look at what they have to offer and they believe that it is too insignificant to be used by God. So they fail to trust in the Lord's power and obey him. And in both cases, such disobedience leads to a failure in receiving God's bountiful blessings and a failure to become involved in the kingdom work. Of God. Furthermore, I would suggest that this miracle that John records for, here, for us here declares definitively that
1: both of those behaviors fail to consider who Jesus is and how he works. And as such, just as he did for the disciples 2,000 years ago, so he does today. He
0: presents it for us. He lays it out there in front of us for us to examine and to consider firsthand so that it might change the way that we respond. That it might change how we understand who Jesus is and change how our response to him should be as a result. So this is the question that that forces us to ask,
1: that we must ask ourselves. What has the Lord given to you? And what is he calling you to do with what he has given to you? What has the Lord given to you? What is he calling you to do with what he's
0: given to you? I think about that young boy who gave his lunch to be used by Jesus. You know, when he gave it away, I'm sure that he probably didn't know for sure if he was even going to get to eat that day. He didn't know if it was any of it going to come back his direction. But based upon what Jesus did, not only did he get all that he wanted to eat, there were 12 baskets fulls left over and thousands upon thousands got to eat as a result of it as well. Do you believe in a Christ that can do things like that? Are you willing to give of yourself to him and allow him to do through you what he did here? Listen, for some of you, trusting in Jesus will necessitate that you come to realize that he is your only source of hope. And as this chapter goes on to make clear, as the living bread, he is your only hope for eternal life. And if you come to him needy and you come to him starving, I want you to know he will have compassion upon you and he will feed you from the bread of life and you will have eternal life that will last you from now throughout eternity. That is who Jesus is. That's the kind of, that's the kind of love that he has. As the scriptures command, taste and see that the Lord is good. And if your testimony is, well, I've tasted and I've seen that the Lord is good, then will you offer yourself to him to be used to meet the needs of others? Through your hands, he will give out his bread to others, be they fellow believers or those who do not know the Savior. And in the process, you will find that your hands will never be empty of his supply.
1: And as one has put it, You will always be satisfied with a basket full of living bread for yourself. As
0: I mentioned at the beginning, the question that hangs over this text as I see it is this. Will you see who Jesus is and let him motivate you to live the way that he calls us to live
1: as disciples? Or will you throw your hands up, shake your head, and walk away from him in disbelief? Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people
0: of God. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this day and for this this message from your holy word. And I pray that you take these scattered thoughts, God, that you would allow some things to rest, the truth, the nuggets that are true and that are from you, allow them to rest there in the minds of these my brothers and sisters this morning. Help us to focus on who you are. How wonderful Help us to live our lives in such a way that we bring glory to you. So, Lord, take this time in which we now offer ourselves to you.
1: Let this be a time of consecration, a time of doing business with you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.